Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. And welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Baranowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist, Jay Carson. A brief note before today's episode. We normally record the politics guys on Sunday, but this week we had to move that up a day. As such, we weren't able to discuss Saturday's primary results in Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, and Nebraska. But even if we had recorded the show on Sunday, our analysis wouldn't have changed. Hillary Clinton is still the nearly inevitable nominee for the Democrats, and on the Republican side, Donald Trump is the only candidate we believe has a chance of winning enough delegates to be the nominee going into the convention. And now, on to the show. Our top story this week is Super Tuesday, where Hillary Clinton won seven states to Bernie Sanders' four. Now, that really makes the race sound a lot closer than it actually is. Uh, Clinton picked up 510 delegates to Sanders' 344, which widens her already sizable delegate lead to 1,058 to 431. So what do you think, Jay? Is this the end for Bernie? Yeah, I think so. it is. Uh, and and it's, it's also a matter of the, the margins of the victories uh, were pretty tremendous. Uh, and, and I don't think Sanders has a lot of places, uh, you know, real, real where he's going to do really strongly. Um, going forward. So uh, I think it's it's pretty much over uh, for him at, at this point. Again, absent something uh, exciting happening uh, out of the Justice Department and the FBI, which there may be. I think there there's indications that uh, this, this is a, a fairly serious investigation in that uh, the one aide who helped set up the server was just given immunity. You know, we've, we've, so I think that's, you know, yeah, we, we, you know, we've, we've alluded to this a whole lot. You, you more than I, for obvious reasons, I would say, but maybe we can, maybe you can kind of expand just a little bit that what sort of, what sort of revelations do you think might come out that could potentially derail a Clinton campaign at this point? Well, the, the potential charge is that she was um, mishandling classified information uh, which is the same thing that um, uh, General Petraeus uh, was charged with. And the, the statute says, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it reads to the extent that, listen, you can't do anything that would uh, recklessly endanger, um, uh, or it could even be negligently. Uh, again, I, I hate to say this about the statute in front of me. Um, but, but it's you know the gist is you got to be really careful when you have top secret stuff. Um, you can't just hand it off to reporters, or you can't keep it on unsecure servers. Yeah, I remember. Um, or so you that's going to be the issue. You can't also stuff it down your pants and take it home with you. There, that's actually I don't know if that you remember. was also yes. Another, yeah, Sandy uh, Berger, I believe, a national security uh, aide or advisor who pulled I that think little national trick. security director. Director, there uh, you I go. Think was so, his title. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, you know, I, I I tend to think that it's going to be a big nothing. I I mean, there are certainly some Republicans who are 
understandably hoping for it because Hillary Clinton is a much stronger candidate in the general election than Bernie Sanders is. But my prediction is that there are not going to be any sort of indictments or anything like that. And the the, the investigation is going to wrap up in, I think, in a month or so. I think I heard it's going to wrap up sometime in the spring. And that's going to be it well over before the convention and a big nothing. Uh, and that's And that's quite possible. Uh, but the other possibility and the reason to take this a little seriously, and we haven't, you know, we've sort of held off talking about it just because sort of waiting to, again, to see what actually happens. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that they've got this guy who they've offered immunity to, uh, and Hillary Clinton has, has consistently described this as they're doing a, a security review, uh, which is sort of nonsensical. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm, no one's ever really sure what a security review is. The FBI said they don't they don't really know what that means and they, they don't do them. Uh, but when you offer someone immunity, uh, when first of all, when someone has taken the Fifth Amendment, as this this aide did, and then you've offered them immunity, that indicates that the the prosecution or the you know the law enforcement uh, agency believes that this person has something valuable to say, uh, and they are willing to perhaps let him off the hook for a crime. Uh, because they believe he has evidence that would inculpate someone else. Is, is it also? So I, I think it's it's I think it's it's serious. I, I don't think you can just say, oh, it's just um, again some sort of government review, or it's just politics as usual. Um, there's something there now. Whether it ends up in an indictment, I don't know. Uh, the other issue you can have, uh, if there is evidence there that goes forward, and there are refusals to indict, you could end up with a. Uh, Saturday night massacre uh, type situation, which is what happened in Watergate, where uh, various Justice Department officials all resigned or were fired. Um, and that, that left a very bad public impression. <laughs> sure, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, again, we don't, we don't know what we don't know yet at this point. So, but that's why I always like to, to put that uh, asterisk on, you know, the sure. inevitability of Hillary. Um, because it, it might not be that way. So fair enough. Well, and that's one... and, well, you know, and actually, I'll, 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 I'll let me walk that back a little bit. In that, quite honestly, I think her voters, even if she were indicted, I, I don't think that would that would change, and it doesn't that really disqualify her from uh, being the nominee. Right. She could shoot someone, and they oh no, that's that's the Republican side. Never mind. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that uh, even if something does come out, it would have to be something pretty significant for her to not come away as the nominee. But I think there are other reasons for Bernie Sanders to stay in, too. Uh, number one, he seems to be you know very committed to the small donors that have fueled his campaign. I think he wants to do right by them by pushing his message. And so I don't actually think that Bernie Sanders ever Never really thought he was going to be the next president. But so this was a candidacy. I think that more than anything else was about getting a message across. And he's done a great job of doing that. So there's no reason for him to get out before the convention. And I don't think he's going to. Right. And, he, and he's not really doing Hillary any harm. Uh, and he's not really, uh, you know, for example, he's not he's not attacking Hillary. He's just yeah. sort of giving his own his own uh, pitch. And I've, I've heard other uh, Democrat folks, and I've I've read uh, various places where you know, a lot of Democrat strategists are saying that they see the Sanders uh, wing as the future, being it's, it's the younger voters, a new ideological resurgence. Oh please! Uh, and Hil and Hillary is sort of the old, the, you know, the last of the old guard, 
uh, and this is sort of her last lap, yeah. and then the future will belong to the Sanders folks. I'm pretty sure um, that's. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure yeah. that I'm. I'm buying that. Yeah. Because again, I think socialism is still a tough sell. But. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm just saying that's what that's what I'm hearing on your end. So. Yeah, that's that. I I would. The good folks at Slate and Vox <laughs> and so forth. Right. Yeah. I, I I tend to doubt that, but uh, you know, let's let's. I think we both agree that this race barring something you know dramatic is is pretty much wrapped up but on the republican side things are very different and so let's talk about that a little bit uh, it was another big day for donald trump on super tuesday he won 7 of the 11 states and he only finished lower than second in one state actually and right. so now he's already was the clear front runner before super tuesday on super tuesday here in 233 delegates that was uh by far more than anyone else, Cruz had 188, Rubio had 90, Kasich had 19. So right now we're at Trump with 329 and Cruz with 231. Rubio's a distant third at 110. John Kasich barely registering at 25. And it's, as I see it at this point, the math seems fairly clear right now. It's going to be extremely unlikely for anyone but Trump to get the 1,237 delegates needed for the nomination before the convention. Which means I agree. Yeah, I so, agree. I, I would say virtu- virtually impossible for any other candidate to beat him outright. Yeah. So I mean, I just that's just the math. Yeah, yeah. For now, that means the Republican strategy shifts from trying to defeat Trump outright to keeping him from getting twelve thirty seven and denying him the nomination in a cont- in a contested convention in Cleveland. Yes. And you know, I was listening to uh, Rubio talk in an NPR interview on Friday, and he essentially said, "Well." That's that's my hope. That's my shot. You know, and, and even, you know, Mitt Romney has said that uh, on Thursday. He gave a speech where he basically said Donald Trump, bad guy, and essentially vote for Kasich in Ohio, vote for Rubio in Florida. Just vote to deny Trump those delegates and let's hope we can work it out at the convention. Yeah, no, and I, I agree that that it's and it's an incredibly interesting thing. And, um, uh, you know, no one really knows how exactly this will work <laughs> because yeah. uh, haven't had a contested convention since I believe '52 on the Republican side, so it's been quite a while. Right, and and even then, that was a different time and a different era, yeah. and it didn't involve Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. So that's... Uh, you know, I mean, when you're talking about people like '52 uh, um, would have been Eisenhower and I believe Robert Taft. Yeah, that sounds about right. Who yeah, would, Taft who would, was. Who a... would have been the other the other contestant? I think it would have been Senator Taft. Yeah. Um, uh, and and if if I'm wrong, listeners uh, correct me. But, but that was a very different system, as you point yeah, out. And so yeah. you know, some people were suggesting, well, maybe Mitt Romney comes and makes this speech because he's hoping to be the white knight. Because after all, if if no one comes into Cleveland with uh, with the majority of the delegates, Romney can say, "Hey, I'm a guy who got the majority of the delegates." Yeah. You know, and, and I'll so, be I'll be here in Cleveland. Yeah. So uh, during the convention, and you, know, you will be our <laughs> convention reporter. Yeah, um, we'll try to sneak you on the floor. You know, but. Um, no, I don't. I don't get the sense that Romney was was making the uh, pitch that he be the guy. Um, I think he might be making the pitch that he be the guy to help broker the settlement. Um, I think that makes a little more sense. Right, and just just to let people know how this works is that everyone has to vote for their person essentially on the first ballot, but then after that, it's they're they're uh, for the most part right. free. No one has a majority for... or or the. You know, it's it's enough of a split majority. For example, Trump has forty percent, uh, Rubio and Kasich, or Rubio and Cruz each have thirty percent, something like that. So Trump does not would not have a majority, but um, others combined and, and in various combinations could. Yeah, yeah, and 
You know, uh, there's also the possibility that if Trump does emerge as the nominee, that can some conservatives have talked talked about running a third party candidacy, uh, not not with the intent of really winning because they wouldn't win, but splitting the vote and making sure that Donald Trump wasn't the president, basically, and didn't take down the party with him in in the in Congress, essentially. Yeah, no, elections. I think I think you're right on the on the latter part of that statement. On the first part, I, I don't think. I don't see any scenario where Donald Trump is president in the first place. If, if he's the nominee, mm, okay. uh, I just, I just don't know. I just don't think he, he wins. I think the Democrat uh, base is sort of, I don't want to say unenergized. Uh, oh, I don't know. Look, it, 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 no, the, the Hillary folks. Again, I think it's, you're going to see of, a lot of energy if Donald Trump's the nominee. You're going to see amazing, frantic energy. Well, no, that was that's exactly the point I was about to make. Oh, okay, okay. Is, is that so far it has been sort of lackluster, and Hillary has kind of been, uh, you know, their Mitt Romney or their John McCain of well, I guess it's her turn. Um, uh, and and a, a Hillary versus a Cruz or Hillary versus Rubio would not generate the kind of excitement a Hillary versus Trump right. would. Gotcha. Uh, a lot of the folks who are Bernie's, the Bernie Sanders kids, um, you know, may or may not show up to vote for Hillary. Uh, if Trump were on the ballot, I think they would. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I, that's 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 why I don't think um, uh, Trump wins, even if he's the nominee. And by the same token, there are plenty of Republicans who who would not vote or would write in yeah. or do something else. And and that's I'll tell you that that's a that's a tough call. Um, but I, but I understand it, uh, and I think I might be in that position. I was going to ask a you that, of, actually. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, look on on, the, on this show, our job isn't so much to argue for one guy or the other. It's more just to have a discussion and let other people kind of have a discussion. And um, so, but uh, no, I mean it. It would it would trouble me, and I think a lot of people in the Republican Party uh, see that. Listen, it looks like. We can either have Trump be the nominee, um, and we we lose the presidency, uh, and we lose the uh, party. <laughs> you know, or, or that's the worst case scenario. Maybe, yeah, maybe we still lose the presidency. Uh, you know, say if it's a Rubio Cruz uh, Kasich, whatever. Um, and you say, well, those Trump voters, then they don't show up, and you, you lose to Hillary. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans are saying, okay. Um, if that's the situation we're in, then that's the situation we have to live with. We're better off losing the election than losing the party. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and by losing the party, I mean what I mean is, um, the the whole idea that Trump would be so toxic for the brand, um, which is not great to begin with. Uh, and and I think it would just be so difficult um, for so many other Republicans. And you mentioned. Uh, other folks who are running, um, yeah, that would be it would be dreadful in terms of uh, Senate races. Uh, a lot of people are scared about that. Um, so, I, I think there 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 may be a Republican protest of some form or another uh, if he is the nominee, whether it's a third party or whether it's a just uh, you know sort of turning their back on him. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think you're, you're you're dead on on that. The one thing you know, it's it's a, a different conversation, but we can have that because it's, it's our show. Um, right. Is uh, you know that uh, what what is the Republican brand? You know, there are a lot of folks who are saying now, and I've heard a lot uh, this this past week, especially that that essentially that the problem that Republicans are are facing now is that for too long 
the people that they've been nominating have been essentially enthralled to the donor class, uh, the Wall Street Republicans, and haven't been paying enough attention to the Main Street Republicans, to the to the voting base of the party. And now that base of the party is saying, hey, what have you done for us for the last 30 years? What is this internationalist free trade cut taxes on the rich agenda done for us? And they're saying not a hell of a lot. And so therefore we have a guy here who's saying, you know, something very different. And that sounds a lot more appealing to us. You know, I, I have a friend who's been a strong Republican for a long time, very smart guy. And, you know, he said he, he's, he's fed up with uh, Romney McCain type of nominees, essentially saying, how long can you basically, you know, pee on us and tell us it's raining? And I I think there are a lot of folks who, who feel that way now about the Republican Party and say this is a brand that deserves to be, if not destroyed, at least they need to go back and, and think about what Republicanism stands for. And should it be a party that primarily promotes millionaires and billionaires or should it be a party that much more clearly and centrally focuses on the concerns of the lower and middle classes? And I think that's a reasonable question to ask. Well, you know, I'll tell you, the, the branding problem is, is, is sort of a two-front problem because Republicans on the one hand, like, like your friend you probably meant, you mentioned, uh, and like many people I know, um, have been distressed over the McCain, uh, Romney, and even to some st- extent uh, George W. Bush, sense that, look, these guys just aren't conservative enough. Right. Um, you know, they are, they are rhinos. Uh, and they're they're sort of you know squishy. These are the words that Republicans use to describe other Republicans they don't they don't care for. Um, and and look, I've I've voiced those criticisms too. But yeah, Trump is um, the ultimate rhino. Yeah, exactly. And but then that's that's what makes it a little odd is that uh, Trump's it, it, someone um, I believe it was um, oh, in the Wall Street Journal uh, James Taranto uh, described him. There's sort of the difference between. He's not uh, he's not uh, unconservative or he's not conservative. He's not um, immoderate. He's very moderate. What he is is intemperate. Yes. That, and that's I think that's the difference. It. His positions are, you know, moderate to to left. Uh, he just voices them very loudly and very crudely. To me, I mean, yeah, <laughs> so, well, yeah, definitely. Well, well, to me, the thing is, is that the public isn't really ideological. And the party elites certainly are. They believe in the ideology of free trade. They believe in the ideology of small government. The public really Ooh, doesn't give no, no, a see, rip I, about I, that. I think I think you're I think you're missing the boat there. I mean, I think the big concern is that the among a lot of the rank and file Republicans is is that the leadership is not ideological enough. I think there's a group like that, but the larger group, the people whose Trump is bringing out all these new voters as record turnout in the primaries and what Trump claims will be record turnout in the general election, these are people who don't care about ideology. These are people who want someone to pay attention to their concerns right. and not and, and talk I, about you know, maybe, trickle-down economics. Highlight, because I'm not, I'm not sure that all those people are necessarily Republicans. No, I, I agree. In fact, I think, I think that's, that's the other issue yeah. that that we've got going on here yeah. is, is, you know, from the beginning, Trump has been, you know, again, bizarrely uh, unpopular among Republican voters. Yeah. Uh, so it has been new folks and in uh, open primaries who, who have come in. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it's it's some it's of the same Repo- thing. I'm sorry. It's some of the same thing you see animating the, the left in the Sanders campaign, you know, and that yeah. both parties seem to be, in in a sense, at least the elite, seem to be disconnected from the actual people who are making up the parties. And that's a huge problem for, for both parties, though, right now. I would say it's more of a Republican more of a Republican than a Democratic problem. But let's let's also take a look at, though, 
you know, it's one thing to say you want to connect with the people. Uh, it's quite another to say, uh, to, to provide leadership. And I guess that's what, you know, a lot of Republicans are, what's troubling about Trump is he's reaching out to these folks, these, the I'm mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. Um, but that's not being channeled toward anything productive. It is just sort of a expression of anger. It's, yeah. you know, as yeah. Trump was, I think, described by someone else in the media last week. Uh, it was like the, the middle finger of God. Um, <laughs> you know, it's sort of, yeah, the, uh-huh. that's, that's, that's the message. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it is not a, uh, you know, let's cut taxes or, or, you know, trade. I mean, the, again, the, the trade stuff is, as we both agree on is, is would be bad for, Working class Americans, I think, in the long um, run, yeah, certainly in the long run. Uh, so, yeah, I think that the, the the toxicity of of Trump and the, the folks he's bringing in they aren't they aren't your typical Republican voters. They are they are angry uh, for one reason or another, um, and he's just sort of venting that anger. Sure. And uh, you're right that the establishment has missed it, um, but I'm not sure that the best way to how how do you capture that anger? How do you how do you funnel it into, into something productive? I, and I guess that's that's the issue. I mean, maybe, maybe when you had someone like a Reagan uh, who was sort of able to do that without without the again the, the Trumpian uh, vulgarity. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I think it's it's difficult, but I think Republicans need to need need to step back and and stop having you know tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts be the answer. To everything, and and I think there are some Republicans who are doing, who are trying to do that. There are certainly some Republican conservative intellectuals who are pushing what's often sometimes been called the Reformacon movement, and 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 they're really trying to put together a conservative agenda that addresses the concerns fundamentally of middle class people. And I think that if the Republican Party wants to find a way forward in the decades to come, it's going to have to be along those lines. And I hope they do it. You know, I, I would I would like to see a Republican Party that I can uh, be be proud of, even if I don't agree with on a lot of issues. And, and that isn't the case today. And uh, that makes me sad. You know, well, is that is that not the case because of the, the Trumpians or because of the, the so-called establishment? Well, you know, it's because of the Trumpians. It's because of the establishment that just seems to be a, 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 a one-trick pony where everything's about if we just cut taxes on the rich enough, everything's going to be fine. Or the social conservatives who really would like us to live in 1950. Um, well, so, and keep in mind, I, w- I, would, I would think a lot of the, the revolt against the establishment candidates like, a, like the Romney, like, uh, like McCain, uh, was sort of fueled by the social conservatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they did, those guys did not really stick up for social conservatism. Yeah, and I would say um, those people. No, and in the that, and that, quite honestly, that that may be a fair or unfair criticism. Is in what can you do? Um, I, I think but, you look to where the voters are in the future, and right now, if you just look at the demographics, this is not going to get any better for the Republicans. You know, when your demographic base is old white guys, uh, there are fewer and fewer old white guys. You know, and so you're going to have to do something at some point. It's much better to come up with a plan now than to all of a sudden get in the position where you're really behind the eight ball. So anyway. Mm. I'm sure more on that, certainly. Well, I'll, I'll disagree with you on that because we had the discussion okay. a couple of weeks back about who has the better farm team, uh, and I think Republicans still do. Uh, but on a national level, no, this the Trump thing is 
it's it's made uh, we're going to have to reevaluate the message yeah um, and yeah. this is i don't know if we have time to throw this in part of this um after you know the, the whole the rise of trump last week i i got out and read reread uh barry goldwater's conscience of the conservative ooh a classic um which actually wasn't written by goldwater it was written by a, a bill rusher um so like goldwater that wasn't really didn't have any Ghost problem with conscience thing, yeah. with that no, having some no. write it but um and, and I would I would just recommend that to the you know the folks who are uh, conservatives or right leaning or even even liberals um, should read that like Hillary Clinton Clinton read it I'm sure back when she was a Goldwater girl that's right um, just just for the sake of first it's wonderfully written uh, and you and, and when you compare the the language um, the argument that that is made uh, throughout then it's it's more of a booklet than a book. Um, and compared to with what we've seen in, in the debate last week, yeah, it is sort of a breath of fresh air. Even though they're they're talking about issues that, you know, in many cases, it's it's anachronistic. Yeah. Um, well, you, but but I you know I'm trying to get back to you know looking at this as a what would Barry Goldwater do? What would the core conservatism do? Um, well, so. yeah, I, I think certainly uh, you know. Uh, Typical municipal sewer would be a breath of fresh air compared to Republican debates. I mean, the Republicans had one on Thursday, right, with just the four candidates. Ben Carson's yep. out. We should mention that. Uh, not that anyone necessarily noticed at this point. Uh, he very quietly announced that. Uh, but, uh, you know, all this Trump he talking very quietly about, announces everything. Yeah, that's, that's how it works pretty much. You know, Trump with his mentions of little Marco and lying Ted and, and, and literally making a pretty clearly, re, pretty clear reference to the size of his uh, member, uh, you know, and the audience is hooting and hollering and so forth. It's just, it, uh, just a spectacle. And yeah. I don't really think debates matter at this point, but there were a, a few things that I think from a policy perspective were worth mentioning. And I'd like to mention them. One, I love what a lot of people are talking about. Trump's claim that he would go further than waterboarding for terrorists. And right. after he made that remark, people went nuts in the audience, you know, yay, torture. That's awesome. You know, so, right. but, and then, you know, when, when the moderator pointed out, um, that would be illegal. He basically said, well, you know, if I give the order, the military will obey me. And, right. and now he backed off from that remark the day after, but of course the day after a lot fewer people were listening, just like how he didn't, he at first it seemed like he didn't disavow David Duke when right. there was a big audience, but then, the next, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Then the next, <laughs> and he does that, you know, it's what, what's uh, been I called mean, dog know, whistle maybe politics. Maybe there are some listeners out there who, who are young enough who haven't heard of David. Oh, Duke. Sure. But if you were, if you were alive in the late eighties, early nineties and had any sort of, uh, you know, political interests, sense of, of the news, whatever, you knew who David Duke was and what he stood for. So Yeah. And and Donald Trump knows what he's doing. I said it's called dog whistle politics where you put a you put a message out there to people so they know you're their kind of person. And even if you have to walk it back later, that's that, that everyone understands that you're just doing that because you have to and so forth. But really in your heart you believe what at least I, I don't know what Trump actually believes, but certainly he's savvy enough to know about dog whistle politics and know how know how it works, and I don't think any of his remarks are, you know, uh, he, it was, he it thinks, was almost a reverse dog whistle, saying it, I, he would by, by failing to condemn yeah. um, Duke. That uh, yeah, that was sort of the hey, maybe this guy is a a you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's sort of like, again a little little closet shout out for you you Klansmen out there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, 
uh, again, the, well, the whole idea, though, with Donald Trump and dog whistles, because the whole dog whistle idea is that it is a subtle signal um, uh, yeah. you know, to supporters and, and the idea of Donald Trump and subtlety in the same sense. Yeah, that's again, true. That, yeah, that yeah. Does, you know, does good work. point. But, but no, it is sort of a good example of a yeah. dog whistle type uh, tactic. And um, yeah, especially going into the SEC primary. And yeah. Yeah. Th- there was another thing I thought that was interesting is – his admission, Trump's admission, that is, that he, he literally said, I've changed on immigration. He said that verbatim. And, you right. know, that, that and to then me. And he also said, well, the, by that he means, well, the wall might be 50 feet high. It might be 45 well, feet high. Well, well, Who no, knows? He's flexible. No, no. In this <laughs> case, he said, you know, I think in the case of highly educated oh, immigrants. Oh, the, the H-1 visa. Yeah. yeah. No, he's, and he, he used the words, I've changed. And, you know, I'm no Trump fan. That's really obvious. But to me, that was a refreshing change from what, how most politicians would put it. Well, first they deny, 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 and then they would say, ah, my views have evolved. And I think this is part of why Trump is so appealing to so many Republican voters, you know, that Trump can say something like that and people say, yes, okay. Whereas who else would say that? I don't think anyone else would say that. And I, you know, I, I get it. I don't agree with them. I agree with them on this issue, but I, I certainly get get why people would find that so much more refreshing than Little Marco or Lying Ted or someone like well, that. Well, no, but I no, 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 but I, I don't. I don't think people find it refreshing. I, mm, I think I, it's it's with Trump. It's the uh, the medium is the message, and the message it does it just doesn't you know matter. It's sort of um, he's just up there yelling it, and it, it sort of will say whatever the hell he feels like he's going to say. Um, you know, there's no uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Um, you know, and that's, that's the thing. I don't, I don't know that he is particularly any strong policy impulses one way or the other. He says he's going to build a wall. Well, he probably will, or maybe he won't. Um, I, I think he's authentic. And same with the H1 visas. It's sort of, um, he's going to, it's, it's that, I mean, that's the trouble that many serious, not many, I would say most serious conservatives have with, with Trump is that there's no there there. He just sort of makes these proclamations and, uh, he'll get applause one day, and if that changes, he'll make the opposite proclamation the next day, uh, and he'll get the same applause because he's up there sticking it to the man. You yeah, know, well, it's... in defense of Trump, God, am I saying this? Yes, in defense yeah. of Trump, I think he would say that he's no ideologue. He's a pragmatist. He wouldn't put it that way. And, and again, this goes back to my, my belief that the vast majority of the voting public aren't ideologues either. They don't care about some theory of – politics or, or government or constitutions trade. well you know i mean they don't actually a bit clearly with the water they care about results and that's the appeal of trump that's the appeal of some would say authoritarianism you know and certainly trump i think represents uh, represents that in a big way so anyway uh before we move on you know it occurred to me jay that a lot of these issues we're talking about about the media and about well the nature of 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 Democratic elections and how they can give you some results that sure do seem less than optimal, I guess you could say. A lot of people would yeah. say that about Trump. <clears throat> I wish somebody had written some books about that kind of stuff. You know, I just got to, funny <laughs> that you'd mention that. Uh, way back in Politics Guys number 12, uh, I actually did an interview with, uh, with an old friend of mine, uh, Dr. Kirby Goodell, who wrote a book called America's Failing Experiment. And it really gets into, uh, well, essentially the argument that maybe the problem with democracy is that we've got a little bit too much of it. 
And I think it's so fitting for what's going on today. And I would encourage folks, if, if you're a newer listener to the podcast, check it out. Again, Paul, uh, Politics Guys number 12, way back toward the beginning. And then there was another episode, too, number 13, the one right after that, you interviewed me. Yeah. I'm sure you remember that. How weird is that? Yeah, yeah. that was kind of weird. But because uh, I wrote a book, of course, on the media, uh, Navigating the News. And I think that both of those books uh, and both of those interviews might provide kind of a little more big picture in, insight into why some of these things are happening. And uh, even if you don't uh, take a look at the books, I think it'd be worthwhile to go back into our archives and check out those interviews. And you can you can you can hear how much we've improved. Yes, uh, my gosh, <laughs> how yes. much we've evolved. Yeah, much, we're not going to listen to them again because you know, exactly. my God, we're not going to do that. Yeah, again. but uh, but before we move on to non-campaign related news, because there actually is some non-campaign related news, uh, you know, we we have, we've got some donors, Jay, don't we? Some yes, we do, and I want to say a, a big thank you to uh, uh, Scott in Lakewood, uh, and also to That's Ohio, uh, by the way, folks. With Lakewood, Ohio, yeah. Uh, and uh, Toby in uh, Perth, Australia. Yeah, did yeah. I get that right? Yep. Well, we're we're, okay. we're international, absolutely. Yeah, us. So we're, we're yeah. So I, and, and again, thank you so much for for uh, thinking of us. And um, uh, again, we are humbled and appreciative and. Uh, we'd love to give a more thank you messages uh, next week. Absolutely, yeah. Scott is uh, <laughs> one of our monthly sponsors. Uh, monthly sponsors on our Patreon uh, link, and Toby supported us through a donation on our PayPal link. And Toby actually suggested that we might want to have T-shirts. And I thought I know, that's, we could that's do that's T-shirts. We could do mugs. We could do all kinds of politics guys swag. In fact, folks, if you think that would be a good idea, if you have some ideas for politics guys merchandise, we we'd love to hear it certainly. And so, let us know what you think. Uh, let us know what you think and about it, that. Again, I'm reminded of the old Saturday Night Live sketch of the uh, uh, PBS telethon with you, your premium choices of your. Uh, Robert Maplethorpe tote bag or the abortion yes coffee mug. Yes, none of those. Um, um, but, uh, we, we, we are willing to consider tote bags, though. Uh, certainly, tote bags, coffee mugs, you, you name it, stress balls, whatever. But we do appreciate our donors, and just like Bernie Sanders, all of our donors are small donors. That's you know, uh, that's how we're not we're, small like Marco Rubio. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yes. Thank or you. Or Donald Trump. But yes. yes. But <laughs> we're short fingered. Yes, exactly. But and for us, of course, we're running this we're running this thing uh, in a very tight budget. And even just a dollar to the price of, you know, whatever, a cup of coffee, not even fancy coffee. <laughs> really so does. Cliche. That's what they always say. I on know. I know. It's bad. I got to figure out a better cliche. Of course, it wouldn't be a cliche. And we we promise we'll stop doing this. Yes, shortly, we, so. we do, actually. So but yeah, if you can help us out, that would be great. We would definitely appreciate it. We'd be happy to give you a shout out on the show and any ideas you have. Anyway, uh, on to our non-campaign related news. Thank God. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. And in non-campaign news, here we go. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, a case involving a law Texas passed ostensibly to protect women's health by raising requirements for abortion providers. Now, in reality, a lot of H's in that case. I'm just there are, aren't there? Yeah, as, as legal scholars. Yeah, no, say. okay, that's very important. But in reality, of course, <laughs> the intent of the law is to make it as difficult as possible for a woman in the state of Texas to obtain an abortion. I think that, um, well, look, I think that's a little bit of an unfair characterization. Of course you do. Um, of course I do. But is, is, can, the, can those motivations uh, coexist? I think yes. Um, the law uh, in Texas, and I believe there were others, others like it, but uh, uh, would require that the, an abortion provider have hospital admitting privileges. Uh, the idea being if something goes wrong, you can get someone to the hospital quickly. 
Um, and that, I want to point out the other idea, quite frankly, being to limit um, abortion uh, abortions. Yeah. Um, but but let's let's put it this this way, Mike. If that that does sort of fit well into what the the Clinton formulation is that abortion ought to be safe, legal, and rare. Rare, but not difficult. Not rare because it was difficult to obtain. Rare because women choose not to have abortions. That's what the Clintons mean about by that. So right, it's a very right. different thing. And also, I should point out that that law that's saying that it's for you know uh, the uh, the safety of women. This also applies to medical abortions, which involve basically just taking some pills. It's not a surgical procedure. And also that these sort of very high standards for the safety of women don't apply. The Texas didn't pass some sort of blanket thing where this would be for all procedures. In fact, even some more dangerous procedures, they just singled out abortion. And so to me, there are really two questions here. Number one, should the court be in the business of judging the state's intent? And number two, is this what Texas has done, an unreasonable burden on women? And that's important because the case back in 1992, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which yes. is still controlling, which says that uh, abortion, uh, abortion restrictions are not allowed to place an unreasonable burden on women. So would you agree that those are the questions that the court should at least you know, look at in this case? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So should, yeah, I mean, you think the court should judge the state's intent here? Is, well, I think they, it's, it's almost when you get into this sort of um, uh, substantive due process argument, you, you sort of have to, right? I mean, when, when you're dealing with uh, um, what, what uh, is a protected, you know, you get, you, I don't want to go walk through this whole thing, but there's the different levels of scrutiny that mm-hmm. different activities, different state uh, uh, enactments get. Uh, the lowest being a rational basis of if you can come up with some kind of good reason for this, no matter how goofy it is, uh, as long as it's not really, really goofy, um, then it's constitutional. Uh, But when you get into things like abortion, uh, then there is a higher threshold to reach. Um, And I think the way that analysis works is you necessarily have to look at uh, the state's intent, uh, although the the other part of it is you look at the effect of it. Right. And I, I suppose you could you could judge that either way. Uh, if the effect is to significantly limit uh, the ability to obtain an abortion, then you could say yeah. that would be an unreasonable burden. Yeah, and according to the court, so, no I mean, matter yeah, what – the court can get there. Yeah, yeah, no matter what the intent of the state was, if it places an unreasonable burden on, on women, it, it essentially can't stand unless the court wants to reverse Casey, which it's – Well, and, and let, me, let me actually take a step back because I want to say something that – because I've had a moment of legal clarity here. Um, <laughs> You know, even even um, uh, my dearly departed Scalia would say, uh, in the first instance, the legislative intent ought not to matter uh, unless there is some sort of ambiguity or, or, or something in the statute that could be informed by that legislative intent. Right. Uh, okay. it, it, you know, he was very much a textualist in that, look, it says what it says, uh, no matter what you think you wanted it to say. It says what it says. Now, if there's some question of, is this what you meant or is that what you meant, then I guess you can go to look to intent. But um, right, I, I right. think even even Justice Scalia would agree with me on that. And that's that was really one of the big issues in the uh, Obamacare case. Mm-hmm. So, 
But but go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say so. So to this issue of an unreasonable burden, uh, what, what, what's your sense? I mean, do you think that this place is an unreasonable burden on women or I guess more importantly than what we think? What do you think is going to happen with the, uh, the, the court on this? Do you have a sense of which way they might go on this? Uh, court court will uh, uh, reverse the Texas law. That's we'll kind break of a, it down. So probably a five three. Are you thinking with Kennedy yeah, being I this? Think so and and again, I don't think it would have made a difference uh, if Scalia had been there. Nino couldn't uh, have saved you on this one, basically. Ian, not even <laughs> not even uh, Nino. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure he where he would have come out on that statutory interpretation question. Uh, he might have said no, it's not an undue burden uh, because. Uh, you know, I, I don't have we don't have all the facts, uh, but you could make the argument of, look, there are plenty of other providers who do who would have the um, hospital credentials. So it wouldn't place a burden. Uh, you could say that there are uh, means by which any of these other providers could easily get the hospital credentials. So therefore, it wouldn't be a burden. Um, so, I, I mean, look, I can, I can see the other argument there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. again, I don't have the whole, you know, all the facts in front of me, but. If I were arguing it, that's that's how I would do right. it. Right, right, makes sense. You know, I, I kind of want to bring this whole thing back to. Uh, I regret this. Back to presidential politics, in the sense that I mean, right now we that we have a divided court, and, and that doesn't really seem that probably won't matter in this case. But there are a lot of cases in which it almost certainly will. Uh, one one example, uh, just recently, Dow Chemical settled a lawsuit for something over eight hundred million dollars because they said essentially that with uh, Scalia's death, they did not think they'd get a favorable ruling. Um, yeah. And and. The, the Roberts Court has been one of the most business-friendly courts in a long, long time. And now these business cases aren't the things to get people really worked up like an abortion case. But they're, they right. they can make a huge difference. They can make billions of dollars of difference to the sort of people who fund campaigns. And so that's why to well, me – Well, honestly, those are the kind of cases that get me worked up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you know, you, you're one of – you know. But to me – that it helps to explain at least part of the Republicans' intransigence about not wanting an Obama nominee, another Obama nominee on the court. But then again, I think bringing it back to presidential politics, if you think that Donald Trump is going to be your party's nominee, as many Republicans do now, and you think that that means you're probably going to get wiped out not only in the presidency but in the Senate and that the Democrats might actually get not just control but a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate – then all of a sudden, maybe your decision-making process on whether or not we should allow an Obama nominee changes a whole lot. Because I guarantee you, Obama's nominee, whoever it's going to be, with a Republican-controlled Senate is going to be a far more moderate person than Hillary Clinton would nominate with, say, 60 or 61 Democrats in the Senate. So I, I think Republicans would be crazy not to at least start the process going, kind of see how it plays out, and then go from there, keep their options open at least. Well, I, I, well, I, would, say, I would say that's exactly what Mitch McConnell's doing. Right. I mean, he's kind of keeping his powder dry and let's let's see where things lie by saying uh, I'm not Obama, talk Obama still hasn't nominated anyone. No. Um, so at this point, you say, OK, we're holding firm and, uh, you know, we dare you to nominate someone uh, and, and let him do that. He, he's sort of at one point there was the discussion with uh, Sandoval, who would have been someone who would have would have been acceptable, I would imagine, to a lot of Republicans. Um, but then he backed out saying he wasn't interested in it. But, but, <laughs> see, it seems to me the Republicans have backed themselves into a corner because they flat out said it's not about ideology. 
they're making it about, well, the American, we should let the American people decide. Now, the only way I can see them backing well, no, out of, of this. Of course, it's about ideology. Well, yeah, I but mean, I mean, I'm just saying know. rhetorically, the only way I think they can back out of this is saying, well, we still believe that, but we're looking at the polling data. There's a recent poll from CNN that came out on Thursday that said that 66% of all Americans said that uh, that Obama nominates someone, Republicans should hold hearings. And a majority of Republicans even said that. So I think that's I their path that. out. You said that. I said <laughs> that. You know, we're all saying that. Well, so. No, but I, but, like, but I think the way – again, it's, it's part of just the game. This is how it has to, it has to play out. Um, and and I think there will be a nominee, and I think there will be yeah. hearings, and I think we can have the opportunity to have a really good conversation about uh, what the Supreme Court's role is and ought to be, yeah. uh, and that'll be great. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I but, know, but that's for sure. uh, but I think McConnell's keeping his powder dry. Uh, so is Obama. Well, I, so it's. I think there will know, be I, hearings. Not, yeah, I think there will be hearings. I think though again, that McConnell made a strategic mistake. Who see, who see the end of the Republican? When um, uh, the Senate says we're not going to hear, have any hearings, like I said, I think they will. Yes, it um, is. It is not, not a constitutional crisis. It is not. It is not the end of the republic. And you know what? It would not even be the end of the republic if Donald Trump became the next president. Though I don't really want to. Think no, and I, I, I agree with you there. I my my concern is more would be the end of the Republican Party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, I think I think the I think the U.S. government has enough safeguards built in. Uh, that they could handle even a Trump, Thank uh, God. but as I said, it's it's the damage he would. We don't do really to want to brand. put that to the test, though. Certainly. Well, so. no, no, yeah, exactly. It's sort of my car has an airbag too. Yeah, I don't <laughs> right. want to drive into a wall. So, <laughs> okay. On, on that note, it looks like we've more than used up our time for this week's episode. So we'll call it there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or any questions for our Ask the Politics Guys show, which comes out every Wednesday, we would love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys at gmail.com. That's politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where Jay and I post and comment on news articles throughout the week and where you can join in, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page, one word again. And if you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate the show and write a quick review. And if you like what we're doing and you want us to be able to keep on doing it, a donation of even a dollar or two, again, I'm going to say it, the price of a cup of coffee, oh, God. Um, anyway, it would really help. You'll find donation links on our site, which is, as you know, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.